Hey everyone, you're listening to PR Hangover, a bi-weekly public relations podcast and talk show brought to you by Grand Valley State University's PRSSA chapter, and me, Courtney Fogel. Grab a cup of coffee and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, today's episode is very special because we have our new podcast director here. Her name is Izzy Kissick. So do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, guys. I'm Izzy. I'll be taking over for the PR Hangover podcast for um, this coming summer and fall. So I'm really excited to be here. And then we do have a guest with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Andy Colder. I am currently a professor at Grand Valley State University in the writing department. Cool. How did you get your start in music, PR? Um, well, I've been doing... I was always a writer. I was always a good writer in, in college and even before college. And I had written, um, but I never really wrote about, you know, I was never a fiction writer. I was always sort of interested in other people's stories. And I think there's an element of that in PR naturally. So when I went out and I was living in San Diego after college, um, I worked for Harcourt Brace and was a publicist for their fiction department doing writers like Ann Patchett. And um, while I enjoyed that, I wasn't the literary world wasn't really where my heart was, so I moved over to working at a small label in um, San Diego, and I started doing publicity for them. Um, so next question. And being tag teamed by The Hangover. <laughs> <laughs> um, who do music publicists typically, typically work with on the industry level? Do they collaborate with promoters, venues, booking agents, and the like? Well, all of the above. I mean, when I started, the music industry was a very sort of um, top-down industry. I mean, there were really publicists, like an actual music mm-hmm. publicist. These days, I think it's more typical that um, you would have maybe a PR agency, and they would have clients that may be musicians, but they would also have other things that they would do. I think the idea that you could have a strict music publicist, maybe some of the larger labels still have somebody, but like a lot of the jobs, they become sort of assumed into... Um, PR and social media and website designs for that. So there's, I feel like the idea of just a publicist as a single job is sort of going away. Okay. Can you tell us a high and a low of your career? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just in music? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the high for me certainly was the first time that um, I saw my stuff published in Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, as a reader sort of like the pinnacle of music writing and they were always known for their writing although I never I never really felt like they were my people mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense like in the 90s I felt more akin to the sort of alternative way that Spin wrote um, but I did get a piece when I was working in the gallery written up in, in Rolling Stones so that seemed like a high um, but actually weirdly I had a piece written in a sort of like city paper in Washington DC about Henry Rollins and that to me meant more because it was sort of more personal at my um sort of allowed for my humor uh-huh. <laughs> more than Rolling Stone did. They're a little David Frick is a little straighter in terms of his prose than I am. Okay. But uh, in terms of the low, I mean, certainly losing my job, I was actually at Rise Against. Um, the economy was was struggling in 2008, and the writing was sort of on the wall. And I was at the Rise Against show that we had been working really hard to promote because nobody really believed in them. And um, I got the word that they had they had killed my job across the country so that I was going to be out of work. And, you know, so it was this sort of mixed feeling of, like, we finally got this band off the off the ground, and they were really selling out uh, amphitheaters, and then at the same time, like, where am I going to go tomorrow because I have no more job? So <laughs> it, was a, it was a tough day. 
What did you do from there? How did you overcome that? You mean losing my job? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think at the time, nobody really thought the um, crash would last as long as it did. Mm -hmm. So I had always bounced back pretty well. I thought it would be not that bad. And um, I was a little naive in the sense that I didn't apply for unemployment. And I was a little too proud to say that I had lost my job. They actually ended up, of course, hiring our interns for a third of the pay of all of us and no benefits. And so, yeah, they sort of realized big business is always interested in the bottom line. Um, but I, I didn't bounce back very well. I had I really struggled finding jobs and had to take almost whatever could, we could get. And um, my roommate at the time, we moved into a studio where we would rotate sleeping. And oh, wow. he was a, also worked in music. Um, but again, it wasn't a good time to be in the arts in general. When you're, and he had been out of his job. And we actually ended up being out of our jobs for two years straight and then couldn't afford to live in San Francisco. Well, we. I mean, we really struggled. We were like on bread lines and stuff. So to kind of go from being like the pinnacle in the industry to being almost so poor that we lost our house, um, it took a long time to get over and it took a long time to sort of feel like I had anything worth giving anymore. Yeah, wow. But? But. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's how I got to Ohio. <laughs> Sight unseen, I... I I basically couldn't get a job in San Francisco. I mean, my friends were pulling their MBAs from their resume, and nobody could get hired. All of my friends at Salesforce lost their jobs. Um, there were actually, like, limos lined up around the building of Salesforce to just exit people out, and it was just, you know, it was hard because I had just come from D.C., and Obama had just gotten into office when all this was happening, and so they didn't have a recession in the way that the rest of the country did, and so it was hard to explain to any of my friends in D.C. They sort of bought me histrionic that you know, they didn't see that jobs weren't, weren't being had. So then, I, yeah, I, I went back to school because I just couldn't find anything um, to do, and I'd always wanted to get my doctorate. And so I took a, a position in Toledo, Ohio, and I'd never been to Ohio, and I'd certainly never been to Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for whatever I thought the economy, how bad it was in California, it was nothing compared to the Midwest. Like, when I got to the Midwest, it was just a different level of despair. And it sort of made you realize why and how strongly the opioid crisis could come in because there were no, like, there's nothing to, there was nothing to do. The only, like, there were three jobs every day posted in Ohio, and two of them would be forklifters. And it was just, there was nothing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, thankfully, we're not there. <laughs> yes. All right. So, on a different note, um, as a woman in a male dominated dominated industry, how do you like find yourself like overcoming that kind of adversity? Well, I mean, when I was really young, so what I, I had really great mentors. I mean, there's a um, there's an agent here, Swanson, who was the first sort of really power player, female agent for William Morris, and she had all of the hip hop artists at the time, and she um, was fantastic, but she sort of had to play like the guys play, and the guys play rough in the music industry, and it's. Uh, it's sort of what you think about Ari Gold plus more. <laughs> Somewhere between Swimming with Sharks and Ari Gold is pretty accurate. And so she had to be kind of, she, I felt like she had to play that game and, and be kind of cruel and cutting. And I was, there was always a feeling like maybe there's a different way. Maybe you could be your own person in the industry and not have to play that game. And I think over time there have been, like Stormy Shepherd came in and there were a lot of women um, agents who were starting to come up with smaller acts who started to become bigger. And they were really do changing the nature of the game. But I think Carla, because she had 
sort of come up in the 80s and sort of like male-dominated Wall Street sensibility was still there. But I think today, you know, it's a radically different playing field. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, that's for the best. I think that the way it worked before, you couldn't get different ideas and different acts in, and that sort of creates a bottleneck effect in the industry. And so, um, I didn't have to play too many of those games, mm -hmm. but when I went to Live Nation, I don't think I was taken seriously. And the innovation was sort of seen as, oh, well, she's just a girl, and she doesn't know what she's doing, <laughs> and she can't possibly. So there was a sort of feeling like I was never taken very seriously. That's It's frustrating because I feel like I mean, we can equally come up with good ideas and and make them successful. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it was always seen like marketing was the female side of the industry and the mm -hmm. agent and the manager and the promoter were always sort of the male side of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah, that is unfortunate because I think that could be a creative way to promote and a creative way to sort of sell your clients that didn't have to do with yelling. I mean, it got to be a point where Someone who shall remain nameless, who's a really big agent in New York, um, used to call every day. He's most of the British acts, so a lot of the Anglophile acts. And he actually, his child was named Apple, and that's where Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin got their baby's name from. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but he used to call, and he was sort of known for screaming at you if the um, act wasn't selling the way he thought it should. And he just... It was so laden with profanity for so long that after I remember one time I was a little bit flippant and said, "Really? You called me that last Friday? Like I just you just didn't speak back to that." That um, after a while you just it it loses its teeth if that's how it is all the time. And I think that women have learned that you don't need to have like the loudest voice in the room to be the most successful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. How has the music industry changed since you started? Well, as I was saying a little earlier, I mean, I think that it was, it was sort of like a, a, you used to not, touring was sort of an aside. You put out albums, and the albums was sort of bread and butter, and like, artists sort of begrudgingly went on tour, and sort of certainly begrudgingly went on tour in the Midwest. Um, and then that would sort of bring attention, but that was, it was really the, the radio sales and the album sales that would make you the most money. And there used to be huge amounts of money. It's hard to believe, but like, right before it crashed, sort of in 97, you know, Boy bands, the amount of money a boy band made in the early 90s, like a boy band like New Kids on the Block or something, is maybe 50 to 100 times what NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys made, which is still hundreds and thousands more than like a BTS today. Mm -hmm. So even though there's a, a parallel between the rise of the boy bands and how much money they make, the money itself is very different. Um, so that's changed. And then also album sales aren't the driving force of the economy anymore. It's not now touring. And so because most people can get the music for free or you know stream it at a much lesser revenue rate, that's changed. And it's also made the big industries sort of have to shrink. I think it's good, though. I, one of the things that I started when I was in Buffalo is my boyfriend at the time was a booking agent for most of the venues there. And we were seeing such young bands who didn't know about the industry. And that was sort of those cautionary tales and behind the music about some bands like the Goo Goo Dolls who rose up and then had these huge sales and then were bankrupt. The TLC is one of those as well, who you know had multi-million dollar albums and string of number ones and never saw a single penny. And so we thought it would be better to have young bands. So we sort of did a, like a camp for bands mm -hmm. or a camp for artists to know how to do these things or know what they were looking at, but also how to do some of the things themselves. So because social media is so prevalent, 
most artists can do that themselves. You don't need to hire a publicist. I mean, they might know some of it better and they're more strategic, but there are a lot of things that bands can do to take back some of the power in how they're perceived. Um, and I think that's great. You know, of course, the, the flip side of that is a lot of promoters expect the bands to do all that because the promoters no longer have in-house marketing usually, and this is really, really big. They kind of expect the bands to promote themselves, and that's a lot of work on a band if you're already putting out music and touring and booking yourself. So like the idea that there's a booking agent, a marketing person, um, you know, maybe a tour manager, those things have consolidated. Sometimes they're the same person, and sometimes that person's the band, which is tough for the mm. super young artists. Yeah. I think that's definitely how it is, like, on a smaller level. Yeah. But then when you think of those, like, giant, huge... Yeah, giant, I mean, those are, those are, like, beyond musicians. Those are, like, mm-hmm. industries or, like, businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Taylor oh, Swift yeah. is a business. Uh, BTS is extremely <laughs> business. Um, you know, so there are... There, when you get to that level, it's a different playing field. And I think for country, it's really that way. Mm-hmm. Most country artists are extremely successful, both in music sales and touring. Uh, there aren't that many musicians or artists that are sort of good at both. On that subject, is there like a certain genre of music that you think is like really lucrative? Or well, country is certainly okay. country and hip hop are the two most lucrative genres, okay. and rock hasn't been lucrative since the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think the idea of genre is sort of an old concept. Yeah. Like I feel like I forget the artist that just came out. He's a hip hop artist. Lil Nas X. Yes, yeah. the one with the hip hop song that they won't yeah, put on the hip hop <laughs> station. I mean, the country station won't count him, and then Billy Ray Cyrus mm-hmm. remixed it, and they mm-hmm. still won't count it on the country station. So like the idea that we have to harden artists and put them in these sort of like camps is to me something that my generation and older consider to be a thing. But I feel like once streaming came in, I mean, everybody listens to everything. Mm-hmm. That used to be something people would say, like, I like everything but hip-hop and country or something like that. And I feel like now people really do listen to a lot. And nobody says, it's not, I, it's not wrapped in your identity anymore. When I grew up, the idea that you liked a certain genre, sort of you took on that subculture of that genre. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's not the same anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, we still have, you know, the sort of old billboard, like the rock chart, the hip-hop chart, the country mm-hmm. chart, mm-hmm. you know, the urban contemporary chart. Um, so someday I think that will also kind of blend a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, speaking of Old Town Road, he actually, like, outdid Drake on some of Drake's success stories. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's just kind of funny that, I mean, he faced all that backlash, but then here he is. Yeah, and I think that that's something I actually teach, is the power is sort of, in some ways, back in the artist's hands, like that you don't mm-hmm. have to follow the rule book for the way it's been done. And Drake is a good example, but Drake is also a bad example because he was sort of popular beforehand, and he's also had success with the album, and then he's moved into streaming, and he's also a very gregarious personality. But there's certainly artists that people kind of, like, I mean, R.I.P., but <laughs> Estacion is one, mm-hmm. and Little Uzi Vert's another, and there are people that have kind of just decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop a song on a Wednesday at 11 p.m. with no title. And they've done fine. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, been really successful. So, yeah, it's harder, but it's also sort of nice to see that they have more access and more ability to do different things. Sure. On that subject, um, do you think, like, social media and the rise of SoundCloud success has, like, obviously, like you said, it's, like, changed how certain artists do things, but how do you think that has, like, impacted and what impact will it have in the future? Well, I mean, the biggest impact is that it made the music industry change. Mm-hmm. Like, they couldn't sustain 
selling CDs at like $25 a CD anymore. And they had to figure out a way to make it work with streaming because streaming wasn't going to go away. So like suing Napster is never going to be a business thing. It's not a, not a good business model. Um, so eventually I think that they found a way that streaming sort of equates a music sale. And again, I do think it made them have to really reckon with hip hop, which had been the best selling genre since the 90s, but the music industry really didn't recognize that until about two years ago, when it was very clear once streaming sort of equated um, album sales that hip hop has been selling and outperforming almost every other genre of music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the, la the labels really relate to the game with that. Do you think labels prefer to sign an artist that has that success already from their own platform, or do they want to brand them themselves? Depends on what they think they can do with the artist. I mean, certainly certain artists are not going to be told how to, how to work themselves. Um, I mean, I think from a label's point of view, anybody that's malleable and you can sort of see their revenue stream if we brand them this way is easier. And I probably, if I was a, a marketing person just looking at the bottom line, I would rather sign that. But it's always hard because even if you do all the things that you think will make them successful, art is not one of those things that's easily... Want it. Like people don't always like what you think they're gonna like. I mean, there's a there've been studies that say a lot of like, so a lot of the large Swedish producers make sounds um, like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande that sound like other songs because we've been told that sort of psychology like wise we tend to like songs that we ha are have a familiarity with, but there's certainly acts that have done that to disastrous results. So, I mean, yeah, I guess. It would be more exciting to choose the artist that already has the fan base because they kind of have an understanding of what they want to do. But as a marketer, that might be challenging to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, it really depends on the personality. Mm -hmm. I personally would prefer the person who's already invested in their own sort of brand. Sure. Um, how do you discover new artists? Um, I'd love to say that I listen to a ton of Spotify, but I don't. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess. I do listen to um, The Breakfast Club a lot, and I do, um, uh, Questlove puts out a lot of stuff that I like, and sort of looking at reaching at new artists, and I read a lot, and you know, it's tricky because there used to be a day where like Entertainment Weekly and those kinds of things sort of were individuals who really said like this person is interesting, but now I somewhat feel like there's a publicist hand driving those stories, so you always read it with a grain of salt. But um, And then anybody under the age of 14, <laughs> I just ask them what they listen to. I don't know. Just, you know. We should have more young tastemakers. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, if Bad Baby ever doesn't catch on again, we can just ask her what she needs <laughs> Like, do you think on the subject of that, in terms, because I remember I was like 14 or 13 when One Direction like mm -hmm. popped off, yeah. and do you think like that kind of like sets the tone, and like now there's like, now we see a ton of other boy bands popping up like BTS, I mean, it's a whole different game for BTS, but do you think like those young people kind of set the tone for like what was to come? Well, I mean, boy bands... Have history yeah. since like the dawn of music, so mm -hmm. I mean that's always going to be popular. It seems to go in shifts of ten years, and I think that's because I guess I choose the age of fourteen because music is so viscerally important to people at that age. Mm -hmm. Like you're going through, you're changing. There's all these, 
you know, you have a lot of, um, you're struggling with sort of like identity and feelings inside and like music speaks to you in ways that maybe at 24 or 34 it doesn't. And so I do think that it probably happens in cycles of 10 because, you know, by the time that 14-year-old has reached their 20s, they like it in like a sort of nostalgic way, but it doesn't sort of, it's not their driving force every day. Um, but yeah, I do, I mean, usually there's a boy band thing somewhere at the end of the, the decade that, that pops up and then there's a whole host of others because it's been popular. And it's interesting, BTS is interesting only because they don't sing in English. And like, mm-hmm. the idea that there's going to be potentially a band that's a number one billboard selling band that doesn't sing in English is really impressive. Like, this never happened before, not even the Spanish language. It's, so there just hasn't been any band that hasn't sung in English on the, um, on the billboard charts uh, in the top ten. So we'll see. Yeah, that's exciting. That's like a groundbreaking thing. That's it's happening. very groundbreaking, yeah. And, and it's interesting because they come from, like, all of sort of K-pop is, a, is, is its own it's sort of, like, industry mm-hmm. that churns them out and they picks them up when they're very young. It's, it's hard to sometimes read the stories. I mean, they've had a lot of backlash because of the amount of plastic surgery K-pop kids go through before they're 20 and it's a lot of pressure on the k-pop kids they all have to live together they practice night and day I mean it's a it's a full-time job for them and you know by the time they're 24 they're like 10 years into their career mm-hmm. and they're sort of seasoned professionals and I think the pressure gets to them they're always under a microscope they can't do anything normal and there's been a lot of suicides from k-pop stars because of that yeah that's it on a positive note. <laughs> Segwaying <laughs> to something more happy. <laughs> yeah. Who has been your favorite artist to work with? Um, that's a good question. To, to work with, like, who's come through the venue? Because I was really on the promoter side, so mm-hmm. I don't have, like, a one-to-one relationship with artists. But because I'm a morning person and they always knew that, so they would throw me in there and I would always do loading with whoever showed <laughs> up. Um, <laughs> I have to say Lemmy uh, was fantastic. He showed up at 9 in the morning, which is exceptionally early for a musician, and knocked on the door and said, Hello, love, can I get some Jack Daniels? <laughs> of course, you give Lemmy Jack Daniels. It's not me. Um, and he never seemed intoxicated, but he did drink quite a bit of Jack Daniels. <laughs> um, Dolly Parton was really just phenomenal. I mean, her, her agent wasn't, but she was absolutely lovely um, and really, really, really kind. And she has this sort of... Um, before it was sort of chic, she had this great drag following, and she would come out and she would talk to all of her sort of like Dolly Parton Aww. drag children. Um, yeah, there's I, I, most artists were easy to work with. Actually, I would, it, there's only like a handful that were frustrating to work with, and they're usually the ones who don't last. Mm-hmm. Like they're usually the flash in the pan. They're really really hot. Like Orgy was a nightmare. <laughs> like nobody knows who Orgy is anymore. Um, Scott Scott's band was a nightmare. What is that? Um, Creed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in general, Scott Scott was kind of awful. Um, But yeah, I don't remember anybody. No, nobody really screamed or kicked or anything. Um, But yeah, and I can't think of anybody offhand who was. Terrible. So there's no Motley Crue experiences. Oh no no no! There were those, but that didn't make them bad. Yes. That just made them. I mean, I guess rock stars. Yeah, true. I mean, for sure. In fact, actually, my third week or something. I guess this is fine to say now because they're sort of known. <laughs> but um, one of the first industrial bands, Ministry, came through, and they had been a band for like 15 years, I guess, and, and they were giving an interview to the Washington Post right outside my office. 
and they were talking about how they were clean now and they were you know doing well and yada yada and later that night um, our runner came and asked me to get a speedball from them and I was like they don't do drugs anymore I just listened to them talk to the Washington Post about how clean they were and the runner and the manager just looked at me and looked at each other and then asked me to leave the venue that night. <laughs> so I can say it's just sort of green. I mean, that, that, that stuff always went on. I mean, sort of not in always good ways. DC had um, a reputation for being the place that people, bad things happened to when they went to New York. Like, I don't know whether they got bad drugs and then went to New York and died with a keyboard player for smashing pumpkins, bought drugs in DC, and then went to New York and died that night. The guy from Drowning Pool, I actually was with my manager. We found him on the bus when he died. Um, so there were, there were it, it was kind of part of the industry, but it was also not. It was a pretty dark part of the industry. But I, did, I amazingly didn't see it. By the time I got to the club, the club had sort of gone through its hedonistic phase, and the management there were pretty straight edge. DC in general has a sort of history of straight edge. So the people I worked with not only didn't do drums, most of them didn't even drink um, or do coffee, which I thought was. Nuts. <laughs> um, so yeah, but some of the artists still, for sure. I mean, crazy stuff. I did see the guys from Sublime, the remaining members of Sublime. They were all smacked out, and it's hard to watch because I was out inside, and you, they have little kid fans, and you can tell as somebody who's older and knows what a nod looks like to wonder if the kids, you know, who are so enamored with the band in the front row know that too. And that's really that's the saddest thing. So, like, they can do it every once in themselves, but it's rough when you watch kids seeing this. Definitely. Oh, Man, yeah. I'm just a downer today. No, it's okay. <laughs> no one called a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> do you um, have any advice for anyone interested in working in entertainment PR? Um, yeah, just volunteer and do an intern as much as you can. And don't expect that necessarily your internship will then automatically, like, present itself with a job. But do cultivate as many uh, relationships as you can. So I think networking is absolutely key. Um, so meeting as many people, and people you wouldn't necessarily like think have anything to do with the music industry, but you know maybe have to do with PR or marketing, taking in as much information as you can, and just being um, having a good attitude about it, because <laughs> so many people in the industry are very uh, sardonic and burnt out, and <laughs> so it's, it's kind of nice having people with a lot of energy who come in, um, and, you know, and if you can work in the different sides of the industry, you make yourself very marketable, so if you can work for a venue or a promoter or an agent, you know, and know the in, know your city. So the best thing that I could ever say to people who worked, I had a lot of interns, um, and the ones who knew DC inside and out, the ones who knew where people hung out, the ones who knew the shows, the underground stuff that was happening in the city, those were the most valuable, and those are the people that are still in the industry today. So even if you're in a small market like Grand Rapids, you know, knowing and being out and present is the best way to get a job. Awesome. Um, last question. What is your next step? What are you What are you off to do now? <laughs> um, well, I will be hosting my own podcast oh. <laughs> called 433, which is a reference to John Cage, and I did not name it. Um, but, I, yeah, I'm off to Atlanta. Um, I'm going to be teaching at Georgia Tech in a business school. Um, I will be teaching... Uh, a computer science class that's going to work with a lot of the startup industries in the, the area uh, and do you know, marketing and outside needs for them. Also, I'm just really excited to work in Atlanta because it has such a healthy and vibrant music scene. It also has a great, great um, sort of writer's guild because so many TV shows like The Walking Dead is filmed there. 
obviously Atlanta's filmed there, um, that there's a lot of opportunities for TV writers right now. So I would like to sort of transition into TV writing, maybe, or work in a writer's oh. room. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at GV underscore PRSSA and find our show notes at GVPRSSA.com.